Hey everybody, Magnus here. With regards to the newest episode of Dinner for Geeks, permit me to say, duh, winning. Hey, your attention please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm obsessed with comics, movies, and TV shows. As a matter of fact, my obsession with comics, movies, and TV shows is a long, sad story of loneliness, isolation, and depression. Now, a fair amount of the time, my subject matter is is mostly comics. I try to resist it, but... You just can't help what your first love is, right? But every seventh episode, I break away from talking about superhero comics to talk about other kinds of comics. Specifically, I use every seventh episode for what I like to call The Big Big Book Report. Report. During these shows, I talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. The Big Books were an anthology line of non-fiction, original graphic novels published between 1994 and 2000. During the life of this podcast, I've talked about the Big Books of urban legends, conspiracies, hoaxes, and losers. You see, I've got a real soft spot for non-fiction comics, so that was the main allure behind talking about the Big Books as a regular part of my format. But... I'm not the only one who likes these kinds of comics. Nope. Joining me in this discussion, as always, is Two True Freaks co-host and former Mento Freeism guru, Chris Honeywell. Former? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know what your status is with them, actually. I assume that you might it's have... Do what? Pulling me back in. <laughs> well, and, and in particular, I think you're going to have... Um, you're going to have a point of view, I think, maybe something to say about one of the uh, things that I've uh, picked out this time, one of my uh, selections from this book, so that's oh, I, definitely... I imagine I will. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, the uh, uh, big book of uh, the 70s is published in 2000 and written by Jonathan Vankin. And the big book of the 70s documents 10 years of tackiness and tumult. This is the final entry in the big book series, but... Don't misunderstand that. This is not the final big book that Chris and I are going to discuss because fucking we haven't discussed the other big books yet. There's a bunch of them, aren't there? Yeah, tons that we haven't gotten through yet. But it's just this is what we agreed to talk about last time. It's just Mm -hmm. chronologically this was the last one to be released. But um, anyway, from disco to polyester fashion, 
This big book itemizes the fads, personalities, slang, and social insanity that infected the 1970s, as well as talking about things like the Vietnam War and some classic films. Now, Chris is my regular uh, co-host for these episodes no matter what, but I think I probably would have wanted him on this episode anyway because he was alive throughout the entirety of the 1970s, mm-hmm. and he's going to have a perspective on this that I just don't. I don't I'm, he and I are not going to be coming from the same place on this. I'm coming at it more in retrospect. He's going to be coming at most of it having come of age during this period. And so, like I said, that's, you know, this, there, are, there are times when, you know, having him on the podcast is just fun and games no matter what, but this is one of those times it's really going to pay off. So It's serious this time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I don't really have, like, cogent memories of the 70s, probably till, like, 74 when I was, like, six years old mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But, you know... By the time 77, 78, you know, the, the latter half of the 70s, I had a pretty good good view of it and some nice iconic 70s memories from it, you know. Right. But the thing is, the majority of the topics in this book, they relate to stuff from the mid to late 70s. And so you're pretty much on point with everything that's in this mm-hmm. book. And so anyway, I think it's going to uh, I think it's going to pay off. So now. Just to kind of give the technical rundown of it, uh, this is um, the big book of the 70s. Publisher is DC Comics, and the imprint is Paradox Press. The on-sale date is May the 24th, 2000. Cover price is $14.95. Page count is 192. Editor is uh, Jim Higgins, and the cover artist is Andrew Robinson. Now, when I checked out the list of credits for the artists of the different stories that are in this, I recognized only a few of the names this time around. And those were Colleen Doran, Sergio Aragones and Joe mm-hmm. Staten. Now, Chris, did you recognize any of the names in there? Um, I didn't recognize the names as much as the artwork. I saw the uh, more artwork, uh, from probably, I think his like, name is Larry Gonick. Mm-hmm. The guy who did Cartoon History of the Universe, he did a punk rock one. I mean, Sergio Aragones was one of the first ones that I really spotted. Um, and he also got to draw some TIE Fighters and X-Wings, oh, which yeah. was awesome. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Yeah. Well, uh, those were the those were ma- mainly the... Um, the uh, the names that that I recognize now the usual caveat is in place here this son of a bitch is 192 pages long and so there's really no way for Chris and Chris and I to go through every single thing that's in here so as usual what he and I did was pick out three stories each and then um, I've got at least one lightning round pick and then what we're gonna do is just talk about those so. You know, like I said, I mean, we could be here for prob- we could probably have a six hour podcast or, or longer. I know we it, probably have almost 12 hours clocked in already in the first four that we've done. Oh, yeah. On this. And and the hell of it is, I mean, even those were kind of clipped. Well, I think no, yeah. I think we did a pretty good job of covering what urban legends had to offer. But the rest of them, we you, you just have to turn off the spigot after a while because you and I only have so much time. So. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, anyway, so this, all of this is to say that, yes, I realize that, you know, he and I both realize that we're leaving a lot of shit on the table here. But at the same time, you know, it's there's just no other way to do it. So anyway, so um, anyhow, now last time Chris went first. So 
I get to go first this time. Now, the first of my uh, two choices actually go together. And these are Bootleg LPs from page 41 and Monsters of Rock from page 174. Now, I'm grouping these together because they really do go together. And, you know, for those of you who don't know, Bootleg LPs was big business. It was huge business to sell recordings of concerts by big rock bands, especially in the 1970s. It was pretty easy, too. Um, basically, tape recorders had become so cheap and so common that if you were careful, you could sneak the shit into a stadium or wherever it was that you went, record a concert by Pink Floyd or, or whoever, and either pass the tapes between your friends, or if you were really enterprising, what you could do is actually sell the stuff to a bootlegger who'd in turn press all the stuff onto vinyl and sell copies of his own. For profit. So think about this. You're recording someone else's musical performance and you're selling it to line your own pockets. I mean, this is illegal as all fuck, but that didn't stop the market for these things. And this affected everybody. I mean, all the biggest names in the music biz, The Who, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Bob Dylan. Floyd. Yeah. Every, Bob Dylan. Yeah. He did it. Oh, he did? He did. Oh, he hated the bootlegs. Yeah. Was it just, uh, uh, was his attitude about it more the uh, lost revenue, or did he... Uh, well, there probably was that in, in, on some level, but I think it was mostly like, I, this wasn't made to be released. I didn't choose to release this. I didn't want it out, and, and now it's out. Zappa was the same way, and Zappa was a, on the financial end, and the, like, this is not the, you know, I, I can... Con I can't quality control this and there's stuff that I wouldn't have chosen to put out on this so I don't like it well you know things like that I mean you know it's not really for me to judge I, I just I always liked knowing what people's objections were but I, uh -huh. I can't really marshal some kind of an intellectual argument to say why they're wrong you know it, it, they're, they're within yeah. the rights to feel that way I, think. I love them um you know, the, uh, this cartoon goes into into a little of the detail about. I mean, there was there were different tier. I, I think the making a profit off the bootleg LPs a lot of times. Dep it, it all depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about somebody bootleg the latest role, there were people who did it for profit, mm -hmm. and then there were people who were like just sort of connoisseurs, and they would print. 10,000 of these and they would s sell them at cost or trade them with somebody else who did them and there were underground groups with little you know uh, ditto magazines mm -hmm. and stuff like that that would would trade these right but they would invariably they'd end up in a used record store every time I'd go to a big city a larger size city you know, my first stop would always be used record stores because I could go find the bootlegs. And they were usually $25, $30 because they were a collector's item, et cetera, et cetera. That was usually, I think, where the pro where profit would get made. And, you know, those stores were running a risk by selling them, too. They could conceivably be busted for that. And that happened. That, oh, that's sure. Not, that, that's not fiction. That, that was known to happen, yeah. But not really that much, like in the late seven, in the '80s, and stuff like that. It, they just sort of disappeared into the bins, 
more. So I remember going to a place in New York City at like 1980 mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just bins and bins and bins of every bootleg I'd ever heard of, you know. Damn. But for top dollar, you know, $25, $35, depending on what it was and how rare it was. They go for big money on eBay sometimes, too, these days. Yeah, I've never under... I don't. I've I've never actually gone shopping for these things on eBay, so I don't really know how that works. But is that something that, within, you know, within the guidelines of what eBay allows you to sell on uh, on their site, is that actually something that you could get in trouble? It's a gray area. You could get in trouble with it if there was some sort of. I've I've sold a few bootlegs on eBay with no problem at all. Um, the stuff that I got in trouble for was I had record sets of uh, Casey Kasem American Top 40 shows from the 70s, from like 1977. Mm, And immediately I got cease and desist from, uh, I believe it was Time Warner, maybe? Really? Yeah, whoever owns the rights to... uh, No, it was... um, Oh, it was one of the big communications, you know, companies, conglomerates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't Westwood One. Westwood One's been bought up, I think, by these guys. But anyway, they they were uh, they were not having any of it. They still own all the rights to Casey Kasem. Technically, those records don't even. They, they spelled it right out, and I knew this, but they spelled it right out in the letter they wrote me. They were just like, technically, those records belong to us. And uh, you know they were they were lent to the uh, for promotional use only to a radio station, and we can re- we can have we can ask for them back at any time. Oh wow! Yeah. I, wow. Now that I did not know. So I got to keep them. So I still got some Casey Kasem <laughs> American Top 40s with double mint gum ads on them. I got some Doctor Demento shows, which I would never get rid of anyway. Those are priceless. Right. Well, and just to kind of, you know, set the stage here for people a little bit, basically what we're talking about is at least um, bootlegs of rock concerts. What we're talking about here are recordings of concerts where some guy recorded whatever basically was coming out of the PA system at the the venue, right? Sometimes. Yeah, the stadium or, or just whatever else. And then the sound quality of these, it was generally hit and miss. And, and from what I hear, more hit than miss, or rather more miss than hit in most cases. But every now and then, tapes with very good sound quality uh, came along. And if they were done right, they could actually rival official releases. Now, I'm going to come back to all of this in just a minute because I've got some additional commentary. But... Uh, for now, I'm just going to leave it there and say that this illegal practice of recording concerts affected everybody, like I said. And that includes Led Zeppelin, my favorite band in all history, now and forevermore. Probably one of the most bootleg bands of all time. Oh, yeah, no doubt about that. And, you know, like I said, my favorite band in all history, now and forevermore, eternally, world without end, amen. I mean, for me, Led Zeppelin will always be the biggest and best rock band the world's ever seen. And if you listen to... Led Zeppelin's first album, at least for me, it's actually kind of hard to believe that that it's the exact same band with the exact same personnel that recorded Physical Graffiti, their sixth album. That they were totally willing to change up their sound and experiment a little bit and try new things. And you could never get away with that kind of shit today. These days, 
you know, and Chris, if you, you know, agree or disagree with me, I think the music industry these days is so fucking small that if a record label finds a successful band, they fucking pigeonhole them and they refuse to let them expand too far beyond their original sound. Even quirky alternative music is formula these days. It's it's really sad, you know, on, on that end. Not that there isn't good music, it's just not on the map. It, it, Yusuf Frank Zappa put it really well in it, that the music industry was better off before the 70s with the old school cigar chomping people who didn't know a goddamn thing about music at all and would just say, I don't know, these they sound crazy to me, but what do I know? Throw them out there and see what happens. And they would throw out a bunch of you know stuff and see what people like. And when you got into the 70s and you got the younger crowd, you got record, record promo people who didn't really know, still didn't know anything about music, but thought they did. And then they wanted to shape things and and you know it's it's a business so they were trying to shape things towards maximum maximum profit and and what you've got today is like you can do great creative innovative music most likely you're not going to make a lot of money though and the music industry is pretty much for the Miley Cyruses and you know the huge pop stars you right know? And the Lady Gagas and stuff, yeah. The Lady Gagas, the stuff that sells to the, you know, the huge masses of people, country, you know, pop country music and 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 rap, you know, stuff that's selling, you know, to the younger crowd, you know, the the pop stuff hits down probably as low as you know eight to ten year old girls, you know, eight eight to sixteen year old girls really can dictate a lot of what you hear on the radio sadly enough and that actually leads into something that actually wasn't part of my original notes but you know since we're here how much of this do we blame on itunes ah no it was going long before itunes i i mean itunes it's i don't blame itunes it's the itunes was gonna happen no matter whether iTunes did it or not, that's the way technology is going. It's almost a natural progression of technology. And so we're seeing, you know, a move away from the the idea of an LP, of an album, because an album was like something, it was limited. It was limited by the size of the tape. It was limited by the amount of music you could put on a on a piece of vinyl and the louder the music the the more space it took up on the vinyl so you really only had like 45 minutes to to state your piece and you had to come up and a lot of times if you want to put an album out you had to come up with 45 minutes nowadays it's like you could have a whole career with never putting out an album probably you could just single it if there were big enough singles and and do it and people like to consume stuff like that and i think there's a big enough market for people who would you know like an art rock album that has a theme to it and is you know an hour long or whatever and that'll still go on and still sell but yeah i mean itunes has just brought what the pop masses how they want to consume music more to the forefront Hmm. so it's not really their fault they're just 
they're just the ones who popped up and 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 are doing it. Somebody else would be doing it if, if they weren't. Fair enough. All right. All right. Well, um, and well, and speaking of the album aspect, you know, when I fell in love with Led Zeppelin back when I was about 13 or 14, which was you know the mid 90s, I set about listening to everything they ever recorded, and honestly. A lot of their albums are just completely awesome. You know, the only thing they ever recorded that I just, I cannot fucking abide is In Through the Outdoor, their final album. I mean, that has like one or two good songs on there. Come on, dude, Carousel Ombra. I know, exactly. That's one of them. And that, the other one's In the Evening. The rest of it, uh, fuck, dude. I cannot listen to that stuff. It's just shit. Dude, you don't like Hot Dog? Nobody likes Hot Dog, man. I like <laughs> Hot Dog. Come on, dude. That song fucking sucks. I wanted to do it with my bluegrass band so bad. Jeez. But even though I had all their albums, I wanted more. And so I bought The Song Remains the Same, which, at least at the time, was the only live album in their in their repertoire. But even after listening to that, I still Not want... Not up to some of the snuff of some of the bootlegs, let me tell you. Well, and it's funny you should mention that. Now, I wish I could tell you that I found out about trading bootlegs online, that I found certain mailing lists, and then arranged for some of them to be sent to me. I wish I could tell you that I have this huge collection of illicit Led Zeppelin concerts spanning their entire career, some of which were uh, taped by amateurs, some of which are directly from the soundboard. I wish I could tell you that this stuff is freely available online and you can get it anytime you want, and it won't cost you a cent. But obviously, I can't do that because everybody knows that I operate in absolute, complete, full compliance with the law. That's me every time. All right? So, for instance, I've heard stories about the concert Led Zeppelin gave on June the 21st, 1977 at the Forum in Los Angeles. And oh, yeah. I'm told, all right? I don't know this from firsthand experience, but my understanding is that the is that the guy who recorded that June the 21st, 1977 show did such a fucking amazing job with it. You'd think it was an official recording from the soundboard, but it's not. It's it, it was taped. Now, well, ob- sometimes hmm? the soundboard engineers could get bribed. And it well, so I hear anyway. I'm, I, I'm you know I I don't know anything about that. I'm I'm just saying that I've heard that myself. I do. <laughs> no, I haven't, but I I know I know I know sound people who have been paid to to just leave a wire hanging out down into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> now I've been told that most bootlegs of that 1977 show are edited and shortened. In other words, like if you were to find this in some used record shop or something like that, 99% of the time at least bootleg copies of that 77 show are incomplete and i wish i could say that i have a complete and unedited copy of it on my media drive but come on that would be crazy <laughs> now this stuff isn't just limited in case it's not clear yet this isn't just limited to illegally taped recordings of concerts like i said sometimes this can be soundboard stuff sometimes it can actually get so fucking severe so in-depth <clears throat> that what you're actually that sometimes it's actually leaked studio outtakes, right? Basically, yep. they fucked up a take of, I don't know, uh, Wish You Were Here, uh, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, and so you can, if you know where to look, supposedly, you can find stuff like that on the internet, right? If, if you want to, 
If you were of the if you were of the type of person who felt that they want to do a little searching, you can go out there and get all, every raw track that the Beatles ever did in the studio and hear the songs go together piece by piece from, you know, a certain point in their early mid early mid career all the way to the end, you know, and like when Let It Be happened, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of them rehearsing for the movie Let It Be in that album. Yeah, it's just, Bob Dylan had lots of studio stuff put out. There's a little bit of Led Zeppelin stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Or so we, so so we're told. So so so, rumor goes. Rumor has it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm also I'm personally I'm not really like I don't really worry too much about incriminating myself. Right. So I'll uh, but basically I'll just limit it to talking about bootlegs I've had in the past. But man, I, like most of the Led Zeppelin bootlegs I've heard, I've never really owned them as LPs. I would, you know, I, I had a roommate in college the first day. He busted out his box and he had one box full of Bruce Springsteen bootlegs on cassette, which I had absolutely zero interest in. Mm-hmm. And then he had another one full of Pink Floyd and uh, Led Zeppelin, which I had infinite interest in. And I heard some of the. Led Zeppelin was so recorded so often that, like, you got to hear not just you got to hear where concerts went wrong <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, I remember one. I don't know when the concert was, but the name of the bootleg was called Mudslide, and it was an outdoor concert, and it was raining, and it had, and they were they, you could tell they just didn't care. They were wasted, wasted or tired or just not into it, but they were just sort of goofing around. Like communication breakdown, Robert Plant out actually went, you know, um, communication breakdown. It's always the same, having a nervous breakdown, drive me insane, but not me. Or no, what was it? Having a nervous breakdown and the whole world's going insane, but not me. Ha 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 ha. And we were just sitting listening to it going, wow. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. But then the next the next one we would listen to would have 40 minutes of Days to Confuse. It would melt your entire existence away. Yeah, I've heard that those are from, uh, uh, most of those 45-minute versions are from 1975. So I've heard, I, I don't know anything about this myself from first-hand experience. God knows I don't have any of that stuff. But I'm just saying that, you know, if I were a betting man, I would say that was probably from 1975, and those were some fucking amazing performances. Yeah, yeah. My favorite one is now, It's it was officially released on, like, a double live album. It, well, I can't, it, was, oh, it was, I think it was Zeppelin at the BBC. And it had, oh, yeah. part of it was one disc, I think, with Zeppelin, like, playing in the studio at BBC. Another was a concert that was simulcast on the BBC. Mm-hmm. And why, it was bootlegged to the point of there was a radio station here in town that would play it every year and pretend that it was, a, you know, an officially, you know, we're playing the official, it's an official release. But it was, uh, that was one of the most epic concerts of all time. And now video of it showed up. I think I posted it up on Facebook like a couple months ago. I found the whole live concert. I want to say, was it at Wembley? I don't think it was. No, it wasn't at Wembley. It was at, at like, Royal Albert Hall. 
Yeah, and I think you're actually thinking of two different things. Uh, there's the Royal Albert, Albert Hall concert from 1970. Then they recorded just individual BBC uh, sessions in 1969, yeah. and then they did a full-on concert in 1971. But yeah, that's or you know, not I, I, not that I have some kind of encyclopedic knowledge about these things. I'm just <laughs> that, that's just a shot in the dark. Well, the one they played on the radio always ended with the sort of rock medley, uh, right. with like Boogie Mama, mm -hmm. and uh, I can't remember what else. Uh, it was great. Honeybee and a couple of mess of the blues. Yes, yes, and they had the and, and it had just a very, very sedate audience giving nice polite po applause after each song. Well, keep in mind, I mean, this is like the uh, the London upper crust, like their right. percent, and they're sitting there watching these long-haired maniacs tear through their tear through their uh, concert and everything. Uh, yeah, and that show's insane. It's full of improv and just dirty dirty jamming and stuff i love it and and this urbane play. very good very good yeah 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 it's, it's very restrained yeah well the reactions are anyway but uh oddly enough that was the first um exposure i think british audiences would have had to uh newer well at the time newer songs like uh, specifically stairway to heaven so and it's kind of funny to think they just applauded politely. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, it's funny that because this was a practice bootlegging. This was a practice that a lot of rock bands in the 70s fought tooth and nail mm -hmm. to put an end to, right? There are Now, I don't know how true some of these stories are, but there are stories of Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant, accosting people at uh, their concerts either because they were bootlegging or because he thought they were bootlegging and that led to this infamous misunderstanding at one of their shows where he ended up smashing equipment that was actually used not to record the show but to measure sound pollution <laughs> and he ended up having to pay out of pocket to replace all of the all of the destroyed equipment and microphones and stuff that he fucked up so it things like that were known to happen but let's face it after a while though the kids who grew up listening to bootleg tapes started their own bands, and a lot of those bands actually became pretty famous. And so you get groups like Pearl Jam, R.E.M., Dave Matthews Band, Nine Inch Nails, and a bunch of others, some of whom explicitly allowed tape recording of their shows. That was then, this is now. These days, I think everybody's just fucking given up. I, I, there are some bands, there are some bands now that after the show you can go up 20 minutes afterwards and buy burned off cds of the show for like five ten dollars yeah and and you know it now there's no problem point. solved yeah and there's no point in in bootlegging in fact yeah you know they call those um well we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves but i think that a lot of in a lot of cases these days people have just fucking given up there's no way that you're going to be able to confiscate every single iPhone, every single iPod, or whatever the fuck else people have, and so you just can't get to that. But like Chris was yep. saying, there are there are bands out there now that they will release entire tours. And the first the first band I know about that did that was Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. In, yeah, uh, 2000. They first released almost all of their uh, 2000 European tour. And there's, uh, if you know anything about the band, there's actually one show that's conspicuously missing because people fucking died there. 
but otherwise the the, the whole rest of, of the tour is on there and then from the subsequent United States tour as far as I know every single fucking show from that tour was eventually officially released like commercially you don't need to there's no point listening or, or tracking down bootlegs for that stuff because you can buy high yeah, you quality can just versions. sign up and buy the whole tour if you wanted to yeah right and that was back when you know I think the dominant media uh, the dominant medium for uh, music proliferation was the compact disc these days I think a lot of bands they have some sort of membership thing that you can sign up for where you just log in later on and just fucking download it Yep. And so these days, I mean, and that's actually, you know, there's the capitalist in me is actually very fond of that because, you know, there is the ethical aspect of, of bootlegging where you're actually paying somebody. Well, basically, you're paying the wrong person right. for, for, for the music. And I'm all for paying for music. It just needs to go into the right hands. Boot, and, bootlegs were just filling a demand that wasn't getting filled. This goes right back to the first two True Freaks episode. Bootlegs, bootlegs were there because people wanted that shit and nobody was going to give it to them, but then the bootleggers did, and it was just, it was, it was obviously, it was profitable enough to keep doing it. And I think nowadays, the, uh, um, I mean, Zappa and Bob Dylan have both, like, and the Butthole Surfers did it too, where they, Butthole Surfers went right into a music store, found a bootleg of, of, of them, and just took it home, gave it to their manager, and said, "Here, put this out as an album. Just copy it." <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's actually very common. More common, actually. I think John Lennon actually he was the first one to do that. John Lennon's done stuff like that. Bob Dylan's Bob Dylan's taken stuff that was highly bootlegged and packaged it in similar ways. But it's sometimes you know you could tell he's had his way with it. Um, Frank Zappa had the whole Beat the Boots series. <clears throat> where he just found his favorite boots and directly went bought them from the record store and just printed them up covers and all and uh and said okay well i guess i'm gonna make the money off this if someone's making money off it i might as well be the one and i'm and you know i'm mr download go ahead and download but i'm also for the artists getting paid for what they do and earning you know earning money from their hard work so if they you know i think it's the, the artists and more even than the, so than the artists the companies that run the artists are starting to figure out hey we can go into we can go into our own bootleg business everybody's going to buy them from us anyway because they're going to be better it's going to be less work when it comes right down to it it's not as much people want to get stuff free they want to get it the easiest way possible which is often the freeway but I know many people who could download songs for free, but they don't have any. They're just like, oh, I'll just pay 99 cents for it, you know, on iTunes and be done with it. And, and there it is. And that's how it's always going to be. And now they've discovered they, they can do it, too. I wish, I wish there were bands that embraced the fact that they don't even need record companies to do that anymore. <laughs> Well, I think you need a, a certain uh, promotional and marketing budget in order to in order to get the word out, and that's I hate to say it, that's the last thing. And even this is maybe kind of a tenuous argument, but I think maybe that's the last service that that record labels can really offer. Yeah. But then you th the internet's taking that away too, though. The internet is making it possible. So if you're savvy 
and you have a really good product, you can get people to notice you, you know? Yeah, and that actually, I can think of two major examples of that. Now, I'm not asking anybody to become fans of these people or mm-hmm. anything like that. I'm simply, I'm simply saying that you need to acknowledge they kind of did things on their own terms and in some cases the old-fashioned way. The band Creed, they didn't make it to, to number one with this crazy, insane, huge marketing budget and then you know tons of videos on MTV. They had radio play and they had a shitload of touring. That's it. And then even more recently than that, you have, and again, not asking you to be a fan. I'm just saying, can we just give credit where credit's due? Justin, is it Bieber or Bieber? Bieber. Bieber? All yeah, right. Internet. Inter- playing piano on the internet. Yeah. And that led to him getting, or he already had a fan base. That led to him getting a record deal. Now, maybe you think he's a jerk or you don't like his music or, or, or whatever. I don't care. It's not the point. The point is he did it and he built up a fan base on his own and he was there's nothing about the guy that's manufactured is what i'm saying well you know at, at, at this point probably but the, to get he, he started out as a genuine like kid on on youtube and everybody would repost his video going look at this kid go man this kid can sing and play at the same time and he was doing it in a more classical you know singer songwriter sort of way but yeah, once once he got into the limelight, he crafted himself into a, a pop star, and he's just doing what teenagers do now and going nuts. Right. Yeah, well, and look, I mean, honestly, my my world goes round whether Justin Bieber's in it or yeah. not, and so I don't really care about him or what he does or anything. I'm just saying that, you know, at least in that one aspect, I can respect the fact that, you know, he didn't need, you know, daddy record label to take care of you know manufacturing demand for him he right he got there pretty much on his own and i i i find myself having to respect that you know oh yeah you know i'm i'm sure at by a certain point that you know the record labels were courting him more than grabbing him and crafting him you know they were trying to figure out how can we you know how can we get on this bandwagon that's already it's already going you know so and yeah. yeah so anyway so stuff like that you know but anyway to, i guess to bring it all to kind of bring it all back in, uh, in into topic though you know you have bands that are going now that have pretty much found a way to incorporate bootlegs quote unquote bootlegs because i don't even know if what they do now that I, that's by definition not bootlegging but the but basically this program for releasing their tours and stuff now they found a way to to basically i guess monetize that and you know maybe that wasn't even possible to do back in the 70s because you know you only had so much shelf space right. these days because you know we all have a certain amount of terabytes that are free on our hard drives you can fit i don't know uh, assuming this is your idea of fun uh, an entire beyonce concert or something like that on on your hard drive everybody's got room for that and that actually kind of that makes me happy because it it basically it breathes new life in, in, into the model of the music industry, right? Well, you can fit a hundred Beyonce concerts into your iPod, you know. <laughs> right, exactly, and you know stuff like that. And to me, it's just and and also you know whether again whether you like Beyonce's music or not, I think I, I think the minimum we can all agree on is that she's the one who deserves to profit off of her music, right? Sure. And so, you know, by that, uh, by that, 
I guess by that standard, it it really does add up to me. It makes sense to me that that, that this is a good thing. You know that that basically this whole idea of because if you think about it, it's only going to be the obsessive fan who wants the entire fucking uh, right. 2000 Pearl Jam United States tour. There's right. only a certain number of people out there that really want that. Yeah, right, most... but those are also the people that will do, like, fan clubs and stuff like that. So, you know, let that obsessive fan grab all the concerts they want because they're going to be sitting there promoting, you know, promoting you like you're a god. You know, you're the biggest light of their life. You know, it, it would, wouldn't make sense to have the cops bust down their door for having bootlegs of your <laughs> of your album, you know? And that's where the practice actually in the 1970s kind of bugs me. Is that, again, these stories may be apocryphal. I, nobody knows how true it is, but the rumors are that Peter Graham, again, the manager of Led Zeppelin, would visit record shops and he would actually beat the shit out of people that, uh, that were selling Led Zeppelin bootlegs. Now think about that for a minute. Now, are these the people that need to be profiting by it? No. Period. End of story. But at the same time, you're basically taking... To me, I, I hate the fucking word black market. Because to me, there's no such thing as a black market. There's just a market that, for whatever reason, the law has not deemed worthy to right. recognize. All right. There's no such thing as a black market. There's only the free market. That's it. And... You're ultimately what you're doing is you're taking the music out of your fans' hands, and if that's the and if that's the way that you wanted to play the game, Mr. Peter Grant, that's fine. Why don't you basically do soundboard shows of all Led Zeppelin concerts, and then set up like a little fan club or something, some kind of a kiosk, I don't know, or mail mail order, do that, so that people can buy the stuff that they want to buy and they don't have to pay these fucking that exorbitant makes- prices makes so much sense these days but not to, that would have made no sense at all to peter grant back in the peter grant was an old school he you know he was a mobster yeah. he was a you know a head crusher that was that I, I mean basically bob dylan's manager was very similar grossman <laughs> he's built like he was he was like the big fat Jewish version of Peter Grant, you know. Mm-hmm. But they were still they were big, muscly, intimidating guys who were you know are gonna their job was to squeeze every penny and put their band on top and get as much money as possible. And that's how Peter Grant did business. And um, <clears throat> it's just like um, what's it? Sharon Osbourne's dad was another music manager in Britain at the same time. Looked very much like Peter Grant and. You know, would would negotiate contracts by hanging people out a window, you know, mm-hmm. and that's that's the way it was done. So, you know, they were like, "Why would we want to?" No, no, you buy this album. This is how we've got we've got the money making plan. You know, and to this day, the bands have people um, who go out into the crowd looking for people selling bootleg T-shirts and stuff like that, and don't usually do anything about it other than confiscate them but they're 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 out all the time trying to squash that well and anybody who's listening to this if you want to know if you want to get an idea of what chris is talking about here here's what i recommend led zeppelin has a concert movie called the song remains the same and intercut are these sort of backstage sequences there's a there's a bit where Peter Grant is literally two seconds away from tearing some guy's head off 
probably just the only reason he wasn't is that camera was there. That actually, I was about to say that exact that exact same thing. I think the only thing that saved that guy's life was the fact that there was a camera there recording the whole thing. Now, at the same time, I mean, you know, there is a sense in which he owns that footage, and so maybe, but whatever. The point is, you don't want something like that on film. The only reason that guy didn't get the hell beaten out of him was because basically the the camera crew was there unintentionally saving the guy's ass yeah, otherwise and, i think and when it, the camera crew left who knows what happened <laughs> yeah yeah we yeah there's no way to know right and the guy that was um that i think it it's hard to know what exactly they were arguing about other than that they were arguing over pirate posters but it looked like the guy that was most directly responsible had this sort of walrus mustache and he i think sized up the situation pretty fucking quick and he decided, you know what? I'm leaving the room while the cameras are still fucking going, all right? Because that may be the only way I come out of here alive, all right? You got to understand, I mean, like a lot of rock bands, and especially Led Zeppelin, but a lot of rock bands in the 70s, they were not rock bands. They were fucking mafias, every last one of them. And you fuck around with them too much, it, it was your ass. These days, you know, we live in such a litigious culture, it's maybe kind of hard to get an idea of how things were done back then. But back then, I mean, you know, you would negotiate either with a telephone, with a pen, or with bloody knuckles. It, uh, pick, uh, take your pick. And stuff like that was actually very common. <laughs> very fucking common. It still goes on to a smaller extent, but... I mean, I used to work backstage at a big music venue all the time, and there were lots of people there who you just... You were not gonna... You just don't cross them, you know? It, you saw them and you're like, this person has probably, you know, ended somebody at some point in their life. <laughs> right. Or at least put somebody in traction. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and those, especially when you're dealing with a band like Led Zeppelin where the money is just pouring in. It's like being a drug dealer, you know. All of a sudden you're this huge cash, cash cow and you have people around you to protect your interests. <laughs> Whether it was Led Zeppelin's doing or Atlantic Records doing or whatever, I have a feeling that uh, that the members of Led Zeppelin were very happy with Peter Grant's uh, work most of the time. Yeah. Well, that's basically what I had to say about those two things. Now, do you have anything to anything you want to add to that uh, before I go on to my third and final bit? Nah, that, just that I love bootlegs and. Classic bootlegs, there's like about 10 of amazing Pink Floyd bootlegs out there if you pour through all of them that are worth tracking down. All that stuff is sitting on internet now, so it's like, it's just not the same. It's not the same, like having a bootleg LP was great because the whole thing felt illegal and risky and very rock and roll because it was printed cheesy, the artwork sometimes was better than regular records but oftentimes was just either non-existent or very cut and paste or badly done and the labels on them had goofy names it was just a great all-around experience to have them you know it was just they were just such an interesting phenomena almost almost like folk art in some ways you know when yeah. they were done very well um, yeah, I, I could do a whole show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very dev. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I I can imagine. I can't relate directly through firsthand experience, but I I can imagine what that would be like. So that's maybe good enough. 
Um, now, my next choice, the third, the third thing that I have on here, it, before we get into uh, Chris's selections, this is, um, this is The Moonies from page 112. Now, I mention this because, for whatever reason, America is very cult-friendly, whether it's Scientology, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Branch Davidians. The list just goes on and on in terms of the cult stuff that America comes up with, but Sometimes, I don't know why this happens, but sometimes we have people in this country that decide, you know what, homegrown cults, just those are not good enough for me. Sometimes we have to import cults from overseas. Oh, they're better when they're exotic like that. Yeah. And so in cases like that, you've got the Unification Church led by the so-called Reverend Sun Myung Moon. And members of this cult are colloquially referred to as Moonies. And they basically believe, or believed, I don't know if they're still around, but uh, they basically believe... A few of them. Yeah, that Jesus Christ died on the cross without ever having married. And so his act of sacrifice redeemed the human race spiritually, but it did not save them physically. No. Apparently, the Lord left left that much to Sun, Mung, Sun Myung Moon, and so joining his cult meant you could claim Moon and his wife as your so-called true parents. That's capital T, capital P, true parents. And they would in turn link you to God. And things eventually got to the point where uh, parents hired people like Ted Patrick to kidnap their children from the cult and then deprogram them. Which was almost like just putting another layer of <laughs> brainwashing on top of the other brainwashing. Yeah, actually, and that was something I wanted to talk to you about when we got the thing underway. But because of all of that, and probably other things, the Unification Church membership eventually dwindled uh, uh, before... And this, you know, it, it luckily it dwindled down before... Moon and, and his cult members could lock themselves up inside of a compound in Waco that later ends up getting burned down by the ATF. Right. So there's some good news, but this again ties into maybe the advantage in having uh, somebody like Chris on on this particular episode. Because I think you might have a little something something to say about cults and deprogramming oh, and yeah. all that shit. So uh, why don't you uh, break it down for us, man? Well, the Moonies... I don't even, you know, he's from North Korea. Yeah. He's all American, man. I don't care whatever his status is or or anything. He was buying up so much of America. He was buying our newspapers. He was he knew where the money was, you know. Um the only place I think he could have done better just cuz there were more people, China. China wasn't going to put up with the shenanigans like we will here in America. I mean, just ignore all the whatever religious tumult going on now we're america is just very traditionally a country that's that will tolerate even the craziest religion taking root you know actually i, mean, I, I, I want to put that on pause for me i'm sorry to interrupt you but that actually does remind me of something and it's not specifically related to religion uh-huh but there is something out there that i that i just wanted to mention and that is I found a new conspiracy theory. Ooh. 
And the reason I mention it is because it, again, kind of plays into the credulity thing that it's sort of an, uh, an element of every single one of these shows that we've done, but specifically people's willingness to tolerate just really weird stuff. Now, I'm not sure if you knew this. God knows I didn't know this. But what happened was, uh, in 2008, a senator from Illinois campaigned and eventually won the office of president of the United States. Obviously, I mean Barack Obama. Now, Chris, you may not have known this. Barack Obama was actually kidnapped. What? Yeah, he was kidnapped in... uh, in uh, uh, 2009, before he could take office, he was kidnapped in 2009, and he was replaced with a lookalike. Mm-hmm. And that's why we don't live in the uh, the the uh, t- type of socialist government that he supposedly campaigned the real Barack on. Barack Obama. That's why this Barack Obama isn't the fiery. Right, because we're not dealing wonderful. with the, Yeah, I saw Barack Obama give a speech around the time of the. It had to be in been 2004. The it was at the 2004 Democratic Convention. Yeah, he gave like a keynote address or something. And I saw it on TV, and I said, "You know what? This guy, this guy is a good enough talker. He could win if he ran for president. I think he could win." And uh, and then he just sort of just and I and I remember a couple people saying, "This guy might be presidential material," and everybody immediately went. He doesn't have enough experience or whatever. But that that whole replaced with a a double thing is coming back big time. I mean, it's it started in the 70s with the um, well, in the late 60s. But it took root in the 70s with the Paul is dead, you know, replaced by a double thing. Eminem, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that Eminem is a clone. Really? Yep, that, that's why he wasn't in the rap game for a while and why he's not quite as good now that he's come back. <laughs> and there's people who, you know, you can go watch 45-minute videos on YouTube breaking it all down for you. Yeah. <clears throat> well, anyway. Now, who was it, who, was it who, who kidnapped him? Was it Illuminati? Or was, it, was it the Republican Party? Was it the Democratic Party? Uh, that I don't know. The the uh, basically what happens what happened was there's this um, ultra 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 uh, left blog that I sometimes go to, and uh, he put up a link to. It was basically what I did was it was sort of a chain, and so I ended up you know whoa this looks interesting I'll click on this oh this looks interesting uh-huh. I'll click and then yeah and then I saw final proof. Barack Obama is not Barack Obama. And I'm thought, okay, well, there's a headline you just can't fucking walk away from. Mm-hmm. Final so, proof. Yeah. Oh, final proof. That's what it was. Yeah. Sorry. Final proof. Yeah. And oh, basically that's... what it was, it was um, these sort of like from the shoulder up type headshots. And basically you had circa 2008 Barack Obama on one side and then the – and I'm putting uh, quote marks around this – the alleged Barack Obama of today – and basically, their features don't line up. Now, to me, this is the least scientific, the least <laughs> accurate. I mean, if this is your final fucking proof text that these that their features don't line up, you're done. Yeah, I, dude, I don't. I honestly don't know what to tell you. There are so fucking many ways that I can debunk that, but I'm just going to go into a couple of them. Number one, distance. Number two, angle. Unless those two are the exact fucking same, anybody's features won't line up. 
Or hell, it could even have something to do with the kind of lens that you're using. If you're using like maybe some kind of like a wide-angle lens and it, for one picture or for one camera and then a different type of lens, it, it, I could see that producing distortion. Now, oh, how yeah, distort- uh, uh, There's a million different axes that you're turning that lens and the person's head to make their ears look bigger or the proportions different. You know, all you have to do is change the angle just a little bit and everything becomes a little different. You can't just take anybody's face and lay it over the and other I, one. Yeah, and, I, and I'm assuming that, that he's working off of the original picture for every single one. How do you know that one of, this, that one of these doesn't come from a, uh, like a magazine or something where they had to Photoshop it. Yeah, they maybe they resized the picture or something like that. Well, likely they did. Yeah, and it's and and who knows what is is a source, the original source. It could have been cropped. All, all, there's a million. Th- that, that that was the thing with Eminem. People, the the one guy who was really big into it would put pictures of him next and go, look at his ears. Those are not the same ears. And I'm looking at it good. Those are the same ears. They don't look exactly the same because they're different pictures taken from. If you mounted somebody's face in a brace on a camera in a camera with a tripod and took their picture over the course of years, then I might start saying, okay, you can lay them onto a computer and say, oh, his eyes have moved an inch closer together. That's not possible. And that might be compelling evidence. But yeah, and, and once you say Barack Obama's been kidnapped and, and replaced and stuff, then that, then if if you know that happened, then you probably pretty much should know who did it and why and how. <laughs> right. You replaced him. Did you replace him and not his family? Was his family in on it? Was his kids in on it? You know? That's not this guy's job. He just, he found, a, <laughs> dude, uh, he found, he found some, some pictures and that's all that matters. So fuck you you know anyway so i didn't i did not mean to cut you off but your your little bit about you know credulity and people willing to tolerate certain kinds of bullshit i actually meant to mention this to you sooner actually off the air but you know since we're here it was a good little digression anyway i'm sorry about that oh that's okay <laughs> um yeah hang on just a second i got somebody hello i am podcasting I'm podcasting right now. What do you want? Tell him I said hello, whoever it is. It's my roommate. She wants a cigarette. I'll shut up when you get out and go smoke your cigarette. Oh. Ah, nicotine fiends. What's up with that? Yeah, that's your roommate, right? Housemate. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> sure. Anyway, what were we talking about? Originally, we were talking about Moonies, and your point was going to be that <laughs> in America, we are willing to to tolerate a certain amount of bullshit that in other countries it could get you killed. Well, the, it, yeah, yeah, that's true. And the, but and, and you know, and maybe not to use the word bullshit, <laughs> but there's a lot of religions that's that are now, you know, established religions in America that were considered cults when they first came here like catholicism i think that was a worldwide thing though and you know more than like an american thing but like when catholicism first came to america there were people touring up and down you know through the states giving presentations about how you know the nuns and priests were in league with the devil 
uh, the Mormons were, you know, driven all over the place and have now become, you know, a, a, a major, you know, one of the major, one of the major players, I guess you would say. <laughs> but you know, they're an established church, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, well, there's well, they're, they're, they're uh, no. I, I, saying the word established when it comes to religion, <laughs> that's a dicey word. Um, well, the Mormons are. I mean, I mean, if, if like. Maybe if someone said, I'm a Mormon, that might inspire more like curious questions from people or maybe a raised eyebrow or stuff. But to say you're a Catholic these days, nobody's going to bat an eye at it, really. Hmm. Well, you know, there's going to be people who bat eye. You know, you're going to have like. Well, yeah, there's always going to be the eye stuff. But, you know, it's just not like, oh, the Catholic Church, huh? You're, you know, not like if you told them you were a Mooney. <laughs> right, yeah, no. It, a follower this... of Rajneeshi. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, like the the thing is, there are certain there are certain. I actually met. I have I I have not met very many Scientologists in life, but I actually met one um, a couple of weeks ago. It's this is the first one in a long time, right? And it's kind of funny that everybody in the room had kind of the same fucking reaction when that came out, right? Now, look, I've met people who were raised in uh in Catholicism. And just different, you know, kind of the ABCs of Protestant Christianity. Hell, I've met people that were raised in full-on fucking witchcraft. All right. Oh yeah, me too. But like, none of that, and on a, none of that really. Keep in mind where I live now, but none of that really raises an eyebrow. But the minute somebody says, "Oh, and you know, there was a time I was a Scientologist and all this," and that people, have, needless to say, conversation kind of stopped at that point. They mm-hmm. kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about this, you know. How did this happen? You know, it's kind of like saying, "Yeah, I got in a car in a car crash and involved twelve other vehicles." Well, there's a story in there somewhere, and now we expect to hear it. You know, it's one thing to say, "Dude, you got in a car crash, and you know, yeah, you you broke your pinky finger, but you know, no big deal." Or, and that's basically saying that, "Yeah, I, w- I was raised as a Southern Baptist. Why not?" Yeah, sure. To say though that you were that you at one point were a full member in good standing with the with the Church of Scientology, that's as shocking as saying that you know what you were involved in like a twelve or twenty car pileup and you walked away without a scratch. This was is he a, estranged or was he uh, still just like ah, I don't do it anymore, but I was into it. And... Um, I honestly there was a limit to how much I I've always thought that most Scientologists, whenever they say they used to be Scientologists. Generally, they there's a limit to how much they really want to talk about it. Now, some people's attitude is Sometimes. the yeah motherfucker, you shouldn't have brought it up. But I don't know. I for stuff like that, basically any when it comes to anything to do with religion, I err on the side of keeping my mouth shut. And so that you know, but there, God, I have I would under any other circumstances, I would have like ten thousand fucking questions for that guy. Like, yeah. like well, you know what? Say whatever you want about. Um, I don't know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, or even kind of more oddball stuff like the Unification Church, right? By numbers, there is a very slim chance that, I don't know, the Unification Church might be the way to God, if you believe in God. Or even more numbers suggest that, you know what, it's going to be Judaism, Islam, or, or basically one of the very classic, very ancient religions, right? Until Some, you start getting into the Wicca Wiccas where they're growing even more ancient. Yeah, but honestly, you know, I mean, Dru- you, you, I mean, if you want to go caveman, go get 
you can go get some druidism if you really want to. Right, but what I, right, but what I'm saying is that none of those, basically all of those have, when you think about it, kind of an equal claim to authenticity, at least as far as the law of averages is concerned, right? Yeah. Scientology is, as far as I know, the only religion, number one, it's the only religion America has ever produced that's unique from the ground up, and number two, it's the only religion I can think of that we know beyond any shadow of a fucking doubt is completely made up, all right? It's complete horse shit. There's, no, there's nothing to this that's true. Their history is not... What? Does not matter. Oh, you, how can you... You can't prove that Zenu did not do those things. <laughs> well, right, I know, but Prove we, to me that Zenu didn't blow up people with B-52 bombers <laughs> and for their, you know, I mean, I guess there's a chance that his, his story, like, his, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, he so much has said to people that, I mean, he was a con man science fiction writer. What What nerd do you know hasn't sat around at one time and thought, you know, I could come up with a religion. And then, like, usually they have this little thing in, in, inside them called ethics. Yeah. Because, nah, that wouldn't be wouldn't be nice. But it, it could be done. <laughs> Just have to come up with a good enough story, you know. And uh, uh, to, I guess to his credit, L. Ron Hubbard did it. I look at Scientology as almost several different tier. There's several different tiers of Scientology. There's your classic... L. Ron Hubbard, could it be a giant work of performance art? More likely a you know bit of opportunity, opportunism mixed with performance art. And then there's post L. Ron Hubbard, when he'd built this huge infrastructure and it wants to perpetuate itself. And that's where you get the typical, stereotypical control freak, brainwashed... Jenna Elfman, basically. Well, those are the celebrity. Those are just no. They just grab onto actors and stuff because actors are are really ditzy and into stuff like that and can be. And then there's the there's there's street level. I've met many ex Scientologists, Scientologists, who are just like. You could use Scientology to your betterment. You could use. I mean, to. I hate. I I just in my core of my being like motivational stuff mm-hmm. just annoys the hell out of me i find it counter motivational to me i'm pretty self-motivated but for some people that sort of stuff works self you know and i mean there's a lot of that in scientology and i mean scientology is if you're in scientology you're basically tithing a good chunk of your money in it to keep up with the classes because you have to keep up with these expensive expensive classes and that's and that's how it enters into the pyramid scheme of it but if you if you are like some person who's spiritually minded and that and that that language vibes for you you can make um you could make yourself feel better with scientology and if you don't mind if you don't miss the money then you don't miss the money and there's also the aspect of it you can make connections because there's a lot of people who are well connected with jobs and stuff that you can use an infrastructure like that to you so hey if they like you you know this guy will get you a job or whatever so i see how it 
I see how a lot of that stuff works, and that works for just about any religion, you know, in some way, you know, I mean, even if it's down to the grassroots level of, you know, when you go to church, you, you, you meet all the people in church who are usually like, you know, a lot of times, depending on what church you're going to, you know, they're, they're people who are more civic minded and stuff, and you can sort of get into that that group almost like uh the masons or whatever you know it's any kind of group or a or a, a fraternity or hmm. or something like that so so i mean i understand how there's people who get use out of out of scientology i think they're <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they're thinking i i think they could i think they could get all that stuff i think the the stuff that they're probably paying all the money for is probably useless. You could probably read Dianetics and get everything you'd ever could possibly glean from Scientology for fifty cents at a garage sale. Well, keep in mind <clears throat> that uh, the leadership don't really like it when people do that. They like people being members of of their group. <laughs> And they, they even have a special word for people who study independently. Would you care to guess what it is? I have uh, heretics? Squirrels. Squirrels, okay. Yeah, basically these are people yeah. who study it on their own terms, and they don't deviate from their lessons one iota. But they still regard them as rebels and uh, I, I guess possibly heretics, but definitely schismatics because – Yeah, they're like people download they're, – they're like downloading their, their new record. Right. <laughs> And, you know, look, I just have, like I said, I mean, there's a, there's some, there's some, pro, there's some possibility that any of the more familiar religions is, is the path, right? We know that this was basically shot out by L. Ron Hubbard back in the 50s, and he just built it and built it and built it. And then it basically it gets to, it gets to the point where you have Tom Cruise jumping around on couches on the Oprah Winfrey show. All right, that's how yeah, not winning anybody over. <laughs> right, and it's just that's why they have the. I mean, they have the bad rap for very good reasons. They're they're sleazy, slimy. You know, you uh, when it gets right down to it, you start getting into people have disappeared or yes. died mysteriously. You know, just general cult stuff but it's cult but it's also mixed with there's a lot well most cults are like this there's a lot of money (laughs) involved and the corruption that comes with huge forms of semi-illicit money coming in is is just a classic (laughs) byproduct of of that so you end up you know you end up with a, a class of people in the scientology religion who are just in charge you know they they have to they're like a cop they have to keep a certain amount of money coming in and and the only way you're really going to control people in a situation like that is to isolate them and to use an iron fist you know just like i mean jim jones and scientology are not far removed from each other you no, know not. In, in in execution i mean in philosophy i'm yeah, definitely but I, I mean, I'm fascinated. I, I used to go when back in when I was in film school, we had to drive to Toronto to get 16 millimeter film developed. And we would drive up there, take a hit of acid and go to the Scientology Center and have them give us a spiel for, you know, shits and giggles. <laughs> 
And let me tell you, it was amazing. But, you know, it was amazing for me because I'm a cult enthusiast. I know what they're going to do. They're going to get me in a room all alone and they're going to talk to me and they're going to, you know, have this whole leading conversation. So if you think that this is what would you think of this and blah, blah, blah. And I just had a riot with it, you know, going through. And then at the end being like, okay, well, I got to (laughs) go. And they were all very friendly, but very blank. And but we were being very friendly. If we had started being like a little more mocking or something, we probably would have been shown the door pretty with a good amount of hostility. Right. Well, anyway, so uh, that's basically what I had for that. Now, is there anything else you wanted to contribute about cults and deprogramming and anything like that? Yeah, kids, stay away from the Browsarians. <laughs> one of the worst cults there is. Uh, yeah, it's not, what was it, non-interaction or non-engagement? or what was Yes, it? and they were dying out, but these days they're coming back because it's just so much easier to be a browser these days. And uh, sh- shit, you got things on your computer named browsers now. Yeah, geez. Uh, you know, and like the minute that that buzzword stopped, uh, first started popping up, I remember it was back in the, uh, I guess it was in the like the mid '90s. People were talking about browsers, and that was the first thing I thought of. I was like, now they're making an inroad. They have a fucking inroad now. Yep. And uh, it's it's really scary stuff. It's scary. So. Well, a lot of people also think of browsing as. You know, uh, the the usage of browsing now is, you know, like in a bookstore, oh, I'm just looking and stuff. But it originally comes more from it was a, a term used a lot for sheep and cows. And it was, you know, when they, the way they would just sort of walk around a field and chew a little grass here and there it was called browsing. And then it that turned into the our, our usage of it now. And that's what the that's what the browsers are pretty much like. Hmm. Well, all, all I know is that, that that whole movement has always just been very creepy to me from the from the get-go. So, anyway. And that, well, we never got into that. <laughs> I mean, I, I went through the deprogramming process with that and, and everything. Luckily, that I was not programmed by a for-profit deprogrammer. So, it was... It was, it was definitely- yeah, and that, you're, that was the thing. Yours was done, I think, more out of... The, the, genuine the techniques concern. Were, I'm not going into the techniques, but they were not the usual... Uh, De, you know, deprogramming techniques. My parents were not there, you know, to to talk to me and stuff. It was right, but it was still done out, out of concern for your well-being, and yes, that's one of the things yes. that you know. Anyway, most of it is, but the thing is, it's what you have. What you have with deprogramming is you have parents, and I, one of my favorite books is called Strange Gods, and it was a school text, but it was about cults, and it was taken as a very from a very even point of view you know it was not judgmental or anything it was just like these are what they do these are what they do and what i what i liked about it is when they were talking about deprogramming is it's like you're talking about somebody who's over 18 years old and can choose (laughs) to do something goofy or what you know society can considers far away from mainstream and yes a lot of you know a lot of times these cults are destructive but at the same time, a lot of times, really, the parents don't have a right to kidnap their kid, even if they've kidnapped them away from something, you know, that's kind of evil, but technically maybe not illegal. You know, go, there, there might be illegal things going on, but maybe not. You know, it might just brainwashing isn't really technically illegal. Right. Um, 
and then bringing them in and, you know, depriving them of food and scaring them and, you know, sometimes physically abusing them. It's just insult to injury. It's almost better sometimes to just let let people you don't really find too many people who are like, oh, I was in the cult for 25 years, you know. Yeah. At some point, they see something that they don't agree with, or they go, oh, everybody's here is really about making money, and they move on, you know, and they find something spiritual that's more useful to them, or or they turn away from it or whatever, but I don't know. I don't know why I want to be so nice to the cults tonight. <laughs> I, I don't know if I am being nice, but... All right, well, uh, was there... Was there uh, was there anything else then for that, or no, do you want to move on to your stuff? All right, all right. Well, first on my list, I've got uh, on page sixty-seven Chuck Barris, one yes. of my all-time heroes. Love this guy. Oh my god. I mean, I appreciate like you know the the dating game and stuff like that, but and and if it's only for um, the Gong Show, and I and I'm not even trying to be like cheeky about it or whatever. I mean, I the Gong Show to me is like one of the heights of entertainment ever. I mean, when that show was on, it was just held up as the the biggest piece of crap, and it was in a way garbage. But there was something about the atmosphere of it. That where he just did not care, he did not care. He was gonna have fun with it, and then when Jean Jean the dancing machine happened, it's all over. There was never a happier time in my life when I was watching the Gong Show and I'd hear boom 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 boom, and the Jean Jean the dancing machine music would come on. Um, I just lose my mind as a kid, and uh, <laughs> and then when he finally print, um, published his autobiography mm-hmm. <clears throat> his autobiography. unauthorized autobiography <laughs> <laughs> that was when i just about that that was that just cemented it in that that was one of the most inventive books ever and the movie that they made to go along with it is equally with uh i think sam rockwell uh, just becomes chuck barris and uh i think uh, george clooney directed that movie if what I, was the name of it? Um, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Okay, yeah. Same as the book. And it was done a lot of times with sets. And like, so when they'd change a scene, he would turn around the camera angle, there would be people off stage striking the set and setting up another set, and he would turn around and he would be in another place. Oh, they did it. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. It was very, it flowed a lot like his his book and it just captured the idea of that he was sort of cobbling things together <laughs> and hey you know it was he the his story of being a killer spy you know who who you know hey he had the perfect cover travel around other countries for the gong show you know to go and assassinate people for the government wonderful <laughs> you cannot you can't disprove it and, right. it and it makes some sort of sense it is just awesome <laughs> and, uh, Gary drew the cartoon, and he's another great underground cartoonist. So that was really good. He does a nice Chuck Barris. Well, and it seemed to me like um, things, maybe not so much specifically the Gong Show, but maybe 
That was kind of an early forerunner of things like American Idol. Yes. Where the idea, let's face it, I mean, I realize that we've had like real hit makers come out of American Idol, but we've had a lot of people that we joke about coming out of American Idol too. You know, it, this isn't people want to see the people that we joke about more on American Idol. You see, that's why I don't like American Idol like I liked the Gong Show, because the American Idol wants to pretend that they're doing like, oh, we're actually scouting out talent, and they have made careers and stuff like that, just like um, Star Search had made a couple careers. But there's just that. And you almost have the same thing. You have a panel of judges and stuff. But man, I'd rather have the gong show panel judging me all in fun rather than, you know, Paula Abdul. Singing my heart out and having Paula Abdul. And, um, well, Paula Abdul's okay because she's, she, she's, she's got a soft touch. But then you get, you oh. get Simon Cowell who wants to, you know, Sometimes sure, yeah. he's going to say nice things about you, but it's part of his showmanship to just tear you to shreds. And and people were getting torn to shreds on the gong show, too. But they were going on there with the full... Well, they're doing it on American Idol, too. I don't know. There's a purity to the gong show. There's an unpretentiousness. Right, and what, I, what my note about it was going to be was that American Idol is the gong show that thinks it's Star Search. Yes, and because of that, it's one of those things that I realize it's got, you know, I, and honestly, who am I to question to question the way that they do things because they've got just like huge ratings and everything. But at the same rate, as far as just like sheer entertainment goes, I've seen a couple of episodes of American Idol. I just don't see what the fuss is about. I really don't Now, If it had been more like the gong show where, you know, everybody's up there and they're all having a great time, you know, laughing at each other, then that's that would have been something else that i could kind of get behind but yeah it i don't i don't really understand it um and there were there there were a few celebrities that came out of um michael winslow the sound effects guy from police academy oh really Hmm. (laughs) turned up on Pee Wee herman really oh yeah Pee Wee herman was on um gong show like four or five times he was probably part. It looked like he was part of a comedy troupe around there, like around L.A., because he would come in with the, there was like a, another couple guys and a bunch of women, and they would come out with different characters all the time. And sometimes they would have a really good thing. Sometimes they would have something that was just obviously meant to be gonged. But there was Paul Rubens, and uh, Steve Martin would show up on the show every once in a while and get gonged. Yeah, I think he was already big shit by then, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, J.P. Morgan. Oh, my God. I don't <laughs> even know what J.P. Morgan did before, after, what got her on the gong show. I love J.P. Morgan. Oh, the things I would do to J.P. Morgan. <laughs> and she was so raunchy. Oh, it was just, it was just awesome. It was so full of just... And when I was seeing it, it was... Well, hold on, in- time out. And when he says J.P. Morgan, he means J-J-A-Y-E-P J-Y-E-P Morgan. Morgan. It, it was a woman. He's not talking about the... Uh, the, uh, the, the the plutocrat. Right, yeah. That's somebody yeah. else. He, he's not talking about that guy. He's talking about about the uh, trashy chick. A buxom, trashy woman. 
brassy, trashy woman, very stalker Channing Lee. Would yes. Op- would often would often um, pull out her mammalian protuberances on on the show. Uh, okay, do, right. do you need a minute alone here, or are you all no, right? Or okay. I'll save it for later. Okay, all right. Because, you know, I mean... I, my memory bank. Well, I mean, this is Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. I could just take a smoke break, right? So So all I got to say, yeah, right. That, that Yeah, and if I stayed on mic, that would be another groundbreaker for me on of too much information. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. But, so what, yeah, for anybody listening, if you're in a bad mood, you're in a bad mood, Go onto YouTube and pop up a, a episode of the Gong Show, or better yet, just put in Gong Show Gene Gene the Dancing Machine and put that on a loop and see if that doesn't cheer you right up. <laughs> okay. All right, my second one. <laughs> quite a swing, uh, quite a change. Son of Sam. Oh yeah. What? What? Because I like any story with a talking dog. I'll go to see any movie with a talking dog. Talking dogs just make any story better. I remember when I remember the news when this was happening, mm-hmm. and it was crazy. I think people people think of it as a murder spree, but they don't, just don't think of how it just brought New York City to a halt, to a screeching screeching halt. Actually, a good. A good movie about it is the Spike Lee movie, the Summer of Sam movie. I was going to make the exact opposite argument. Oh, really? I, I thought it was... Uh, I, I'm I'm not just up and down with Spike Lee. I am usually love him or hate him. Mm-hmm. There's like three Spike Lee movies that I've like... Yeah, um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll scratch that. There's two Spike Lee movies that I've seen that I was like, I really like that movie. And then the rest of them, there's a couple that I was sort of like, like um, his first big hit, uh, Do the Right Thing. I was eh, split on that. I, I appreciated it as a bold piece of filmmaking and really well acted and directed, but it had major flaws. And like a lot of his other movies I've seen have just like enraged me with how he would sacrifice, he would have great filmmaking and character stuff going on, and then he had to editorialize in it. But Summer of Sam was kind of free of that in in a lot of ways, and was just sort of, you know, uh, sort of a John Leguizamo disco love story with the, with the backdrop of Son of Sam. Although Berkowitz was a major character in the story, and a talking dog, Yep. So say what you will about the movie, it had a talking dog in it. I have to give positive reviews of both Scooby Doo movies for the same reason. So. Mm. Well, I guess my beef with Summer of Sam, and keep in mind, I saw it once. It was basically not long after it came out on video. Uh-huh. So I'm not exactly coming at this like really fresh, right? But what I remember is that I really wanted to like Mira Sorvino in that movie, and. Uh-huh. She just gave me every possible reason not to, uh-huh. <laughs> up to and including uh, letting her boyfriend, John Leguizamo, talk her into going to Studio 54, which, by the way, we could probably make an entire bit just out of that. But the, but the minute you, you, hear the, you see the Studio 54 set and he's in that Saturday Night uh, Fever um, a disco suit, you know where this is going, right? And yeah. sure enough, they end up uh, kind of having swingers night there. 
And honestly, I mean, Studio 54, and maybe rightly so, it, its reputation kind of precedes it. But it just it kind of feels like, you know, in the middle of this, basically it's supposed to be, I guess, a kind of a summer of paranoia. It's a time of surveillance and uncertainty. You know, nobody knows just what the fuck's going on. It's just people are afraid to – people are just basically going crazy out of fear. Yes. Right? And, you know, this is one of the worst reigns of terror that – sustained reigns of terror that I think New York has ever been subjected to. And maybe this was just their way of acting out. I don't know. Um, But I guess what I'm saying is it's just – the characters took it to a point where you just – I at least lost all fucking sympathy for them. Now, that having been said, there is one really fucking cool part of that movie, and that is where – there's a moment where – God, now I'm blanking on uh, on the actor's name. But he uh, plugs in his guitar to do a pract- – uh, just to you know, practice with it and play along. And intercut with this is a sort of montage sequence set against uh, the Who's Baba O'Reilly. Uh-huh. And, you know, just the way that he was jamming out to the song, intercut with just these other really just fucking horrifying things that are going on. I thought that was really powerful, really effective. And keep in mind, I, lo- I just love that song to, to pieces anyway, so maybe that's kind of covering my opinion of the whole thing but i just uh-huh. that part that sequence i will remember that for the rest of my life but otherwise that and and obviously and i'm gonna remember that in the studio 54 bit but otherwise i mean it just felt like so much of that movie maybe i'm just missing the point maybe that's it but i just i did not get into it maybe that's the best way to put it i think he was trying to say you see i wasn't really i i, I wasn't really looking at it looking at the movie to like either of those characters and I, I think he was trying to go for the showing how that you know having that looming above everything was just making a bad situation worse between these two characters right you know it was it was exacerbating all the things that were it was it was bringing out the worst in them you know more than bringing out the best in people you know the story of son of sam is not about like the neighborhoods grouping although there were people doing like neighborhood watch and stuff but you know the story is more of instead of people banding together to find the killer it was more of a paranoia story of people pointing fingers and fearing everybody and you know you know locking themselves in their houses and i think that's sort of what he was going to set set that tone amidst at the same time, you had the disco era going with the carefree hedonism, right? And how it sort of brought it to the. It, it's very, I, it's very not as much from Summer of Sam, but the the whole Son of Sam thing is very similar to Manson in a way, as it sort of like underlines the end of 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 the sunnier side of an era. You know, where the, the hippy-dippy 60s ended when a, a group of crazed acid-head hippies mass-murdered people. And this sort of brought a bitter, bittersweet end to the whole, you know, disco downtown sort of thing, you know? Right. Well, and, and if it's going to help 
you maybe relate to where I'm coming from on this. Bear in mind that I saw this, I think it was the summer after I graduated from high school. Now, just to hear that maybe doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but keep in mind, I graduated in 1999, right? Mm-hmm. To put it another way, just a couple of weeks after after Columbine happened. Oh, okay. And so I went to school in a town. It was very small. It was a little bit rural. And it was very similar to Littleton, Colorado in a lot of ways. And I went to school on April the 21st of 1999. And I could not have been the only one looking around and thinking, you know what? This place is a lot like Columbine High School, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that, you know, every single high school – well, I I assume every single high school out there has its fair share of hard cases and, and, you know, kind of rough types. And under the right circumstances, with the right amount of time and the right amount of pressure, who knows what might happen, right? And so now all of a sudden we are all living in the same fucking pressure cooker. And right from the start, the school, the school administrators really were not taking a chance. They pretty much identified who the troublemakers or the perceived troublemakers might be and just started riding their balls every single day. And it was, it was actually to the point – like I want, I want to say it was – That's counterproductive the, right there, yeah. Yeah, and like probably by the middle of May, it was unusual – if a day, if a full school day for me, which wasn't even saying all that much because I was just there so briefly, but it was unusual if a school day went by without somebody or somebody's getting arrested. That's how fucking Jesus. serious. And so, you know, I knew very well what paranoia, because I'm looking around, you know, this room, because there was some other stuff that was going on. Basically, I pulled some kind of computer related shenanigans, and so I ended up serving a lot of, a lot of detention, right? I want to say it, it worked out to something like 30 or so hours of fucking detention, right? Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was a bum rap. And uh, anyway, so, so fucking I show up and I'm looking around, you know, de- the uh, detention room and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Fucking any one of these guys might be the next might be the next uh, guy in a trench coat with a shotgun for all I know. Oh yeah. And so, you know, anyway, so I know personally, I remember I can think of a handful of people from my high school who could have possibly done something like that if they'd gone in the right or wrong direction. Yeah. And so, you know, I realized that, you know, one of the uh, one of the big themes of uh, the uh, summer of uh, Sam as a movie is, you know, basically the effect that this fucking lunatic had on the city of New York and everything, you know, and the paranoia and the fear and all that stuff. It's just that when I saw this movie, I was still, I don't want to say post-traumatic stress disorder, but I was kind of dealing, putting some of this stuff to bed for myself. And so I knew exactly what that kind of pressure cooker environment was like. And I don't remember acting out in quite those ways. So just bear in mind, it's all about perspective. So it's my only point. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I hated my high school career, but I'm really glad it was in that time period and not post Columbine. Scott Gardner and I would have been purged <laughs> so quickly, you know, stuff that was just a trip to the principal's office in those days could get you could have the cops called these days 
whether you broke a law or not, but it could have the cops called just in case type of stuff. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and that actually kind of leads into, well, fuck it. You know, I don't want to get going on another rant, but yeah, suffice, yeah, I agree with you. All right, you ought to go on. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Sorry, it's kind of a Debbie oh, Downer okay. note to end on, but yeah, sorry. But yeah, whatever's next, yeah. Well, I'm about to, well, I'll bring the mood up a little bit. The next one I picked was It's Saturday Night. Oh, yes. What uh, what page number is this now? That is page 163. Okay, so I'm a little bit off. All right, getting there. Okay, here I am. Yep, all right, I'm there. It, I mean... That was one of those things I remember being there. I remember not getting to see Saturday Night Live right away. I still got to see it in the early days when it was still Chevy Chase and, and you know, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi and the, 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 the original crew. But every once in a while, you know, it'd be like I'd be staying over at a friend's house and, you know, they'd let us stay up and watch Saturday Night Live. I it's it's pretty similar i think to the beatles and star wars is where you just never saw anything like this before on tv and i think it's maybe one of those things you kind of had to be there it was amazing yeah because it was nothing i mean nowadays the format and the idea is so is so established and uh i mean it's also I, I don't want to say Saturday, Saturday Night Live, definitely, and the comic covers it really well, had its period without Lauren Michaels, and that was when I was in high school, and that was when I watched Saturday Night Live every week. It was like a weekly, you know, everybody sat down and watched Saturday Night Live. But at that point, it really was more for the musical guest. Yeah. <laughs> because it was just during that lame period. You had a few good people on there your dana carvey's and stuff and you had your wayne's worlds happening every now and then but for the most part it was floundering and struggling but like the thing about saturday night live it's 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 sort of an organic thing so it's a product of its decade so the 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 70s saturday night live the original lone lauren mark michaels it's you know satire and drug laced humor um uh, one of my, I, I think the book was called Live from New York at Saturday Night and uh, was just a fascinating story of how how they wrote the skits and how it was set up. And basically it was just a big rolling party. Mm-hmm. Um, they were partying a lot, but they were also writing like cra- crazy, but they were taking, you know, lots of drugs. I mean, the the legendary skit they did. Uh, with uh, Nixon and Kissinger where, you know, he calls him into the Oval Office and he's like, come on, pray to me, pray with me, Henry. You know, that that whole sketch was written by Al Franken and I don't, I, I think, I can't remember who his writing partner was at the time, but they were like tripping on acid and just writing this thing and cracking up and going, there's never going to be a chance that anybody, you know, they're like, we're going to come down off of this and it's going to make no sense and ended up being a skit, you know? Wow. And just, you know, I, I just remember see I remember seeing um, Andy Kaufman for the first time do his uh, Mighty Mouse. Um, You're right. That was Saturday Night Live, wasn't it? Okay. Doing the Mighty Mouse with the record player bit. And that that is like my crowning 
memory of that and a skit called Teeny Tiny Micro Dentists. I remember that one really well. It was a terrible skit, too, looking back at it. But, like, seeing Andy Kaufman do that skit, I remember watching it with my friend Will Howard's family, and I was watching it doing the. It's only when you're a kid can you do that Pee Wee Herman laugh where you roll out, literally are rolling on the floor. Right. Laughing. Right. And I mean, I could roll on the floor laughing now, but it would be an affected thing. I'd get down and roll on the floor. This this put me down on the floor rolling. And I remember the house full of his sisters and his mother and father and him all looking at me going, why did you think that was funny? That was the stupidest thing I ever saw. And I'm like, don't you see? It's hilarious. <laughs> and they're like, why? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's because he doesn't sing. He only sings that one part song because he's my, I, I don't know. It's hilarious. <laughs> and that was when I was starting to begin to realize that my sense of humor was not in alignment with <laughs> most people's sense of humor. But I mean, they, that was now when you're a band on Saturday night live, they pick somebody who's hot. Back in those days, they picked people who were hot, I guess, but they picked edgy shit. They had Captain Beefheart on there. They had um, Zappa on there, which in itself at that time period, uh, through the 70s and the 80s, if you saw Frank Zappa on television or something, you would like get up on the chair and be just like, yes, victory, Frank Zappa is on TV and now people are going to have to listen to him speak and maybe they'll even play some of his music. It was very exciting. And then he, I think he was on... Oh, no, I think I, I think he was actually banned from Saturday Night Live. After, I think Lorne Michaels was not happy with him for some reason because of how he acted in the sketches he was in. Well, but, the, as far as like musical guests, the one that I... The one that really stands out for me from that time was uh, Joe Cocker, and you had John Belushi right beside mm -hmm. him, and he was basically doing a sort of Joe Cocker impression. At the same time, the real Joe Cocker is standing right beside him singing the song. And, the, and I can't remember if it's a duet or if John Belushi was just uh, pretending to sing along with or what, but I actually thought, you know, that is really because they were dressed the exact same. They were they had the exact same manners. It was just fucking hilarious. I, Belushi nailed him. Yeah, nailed him. And that was back. At, I mean, that that we see a lot of that kind of humor nowadays. But that's where it came from. You know that that when it first uh, it's you watch it now and it's still funny, but it's not just like whoa, holy shit. You know, this is it was it was so new and so unlike. I mean, I imagine people who are going to stuff like Second City and stuff and seeing live improvisation troops and sketch troops. You know, it, to them it was familiar territory. Right. But that's not a lot of people. That's not the main TV watching audience. And uh, well, even if it was familiar territory, I mean, they at the very least they probably not likely seen. Belushi do it, or they hadn't probably seen Dan Aykroyd do it, or, right. or Chevy Chase. So there's still at least that as a new element. But I think Andy Kaufman did his Elvis impersonation on Saturday Night Live once, also. Yeah. Um, well, actually, and that I don't know about. But it, you know, I remember in the uh, Urban Legends episode, what I said was about uh, Andy Kaufman was that his problem was that he was so far ahead of his time as far as media. That it was impossible, really, for him to get the kind of to get any kind of real traction, 
But it's this is one of those things that kind of makes me wonder, you know, what might Andy Kaufman have done or what might the the first season Saturday Night Live cast members have done if they'd had access to YouTube back then? You yeah. Know? And, and that level of technology where you don't have to worry so much about censors or commercial breaks or anything like that. You know, you're you're kind of free from that from that stuff. What might there's, they have done? There's people out there doing it. I think that Lonely Island those Lonely Island guys who they do do sketches and and jokey songs, yeah. and they had something to do I think with actually the Lego Movie. Now they started out as a as a internet thing, you know, an internet sketch troupe. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 gonna happen. I mean, basically YouTube is becoming TV. It's morphing into TV anyway. Mm-hmm. And so now it's going to be like independently produced. There's going to be independently produced. TV shows and stuff, and you're well, gonna. And, you're and gonna in fact, have you're actually already there in terms of other. Have you ever seen oh, those, yeah. those Chad Vader shows? Uh huh. Uh huh. I'm, I'm I'm subscribed to their their channel. They're very prolific. Those guys and those guys have a lot of things going. Uh, the guy who does the guy who plays Chad Vader is also a really good voice actor, and he does a lot of voice acting and stuff. And they also have a show. They have a great show called Beer and Board Games. Mm-hmm. Where they get drunk and play people send them board games to play oh boy <laughs> and it's hilarious and you know he's yeah they've got yeah they've got a whole they basically they've got their own little two true freaks on youtube where they have a whole they have one show where people just play video games and talk over them which is hilarious they have what one called uh christopher walking through where christopher the one guy who does a really good christopher walk-in and is really obscene too about it and foul-mouthed will play games as christopher walken and when he plays online games whoever he's playing against is usually morgan freeman who's his um <laughs> sworn enemy and those are <laughs> flat out hilarious what well, sounds funny just listening to it dude yeah. yeah and uh they do one show that's very podcast like where somebody sends them a movie that they haven't seen before and they both sit down and watch it and then they talk about what they thought about it and uh, and they're do- you know they're doing they're doing really well you know I mean I imagine they can make pretty good money just doing like speaking at cons and stuff like that right so I mean we're 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 just getting into the I mean they're not millionaires but maybe someday some someday that's gonna happen with somebody all right all right and all that right. was my third one wasn't it yep. So, um, as for, do you have anything for a uh, uh, lightning round, uh, like one or two uh, to go with? The only one I sort of had extra was uh, it was on my original list, and then it got bumped by Saturday Night Live was uh, the Brady Bunch. Okay. Just because I had a good story of, about the Brady Bunch. I'm all ears, man. I didn't see them till the '80s, but for some reason, I really liked the show even as a kid i knew it was really hokey but i used to watch it every day and then in the 90s <laughs> ended up at a grateful dead show in buffalo and in another frustrating another story for another day having out of out of ignorance and being just young and stupid and not paying attention missed out on my awesome chance for a three-way with a blonde and a brunette <sighs> 
and uh, woke up. Well, being up. as I have nothing uh, nothing to contribute really as far as the Brady Bunch is concerned, if you want to talk about the would-be three-way. <laughs> I don't, but I will because it's painful. And it's it's that that that's not as exciting. It was I uh, there were two girls. They were best friends. One of them had dated one of my um, good friends at the time that I was also roommates with. But they'd broken up a while ago. Yeah, just and keep going. I like, of, I like where this is going. Come on. They glommed out. I know it's a it's a dear penthouse. I know that I, I read your column all the time, and I think it's all made up. But then one day, but here's the thing: Chris is oblivious at the time because Chris doesn't think of the, this girl as potentially it, like this guy. If even if I dated her five years after he did, or even just slept with her and her friend, he would have gone. It would have been a full flip out freak out pain in the ass to deal with but we won't even get to me thinking about that because i didn't even get that far in the mental process to be like should i do this or shouldn't i i didn't even get the little angel and the little devil on my shoulder i um these two girls sort of glommed on to my friend and i who were going to the show and said hey can we follow you down we've never been to a dead show before and so you know help us get settled oh sure you know and um he was he's he was like ten years older than me, and so they so they were like ah oh, you guys know and he was a big deadhead, so they're like ah oh, you can show us around sure no problem, so we get to the we get to the show, and I'm trying to set up this tent that's just like broken, but I'm just like bound and determined to get it to work so I can go to sleep, and they're they're in their tent. And I'd had a couple other little like we'd stopped at a rest stop and they and while my friend was in buying a candy bar they popped into the front seat and were like hanging over the seat like hi Chris blah 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 but I just thought ah oh, they're excited to go to a dead show and they and they were watching me try to set up this tent and they're like you can stay in our tent with us you should really stay in our tent with us and I'm like no I'm gonna get this goddamn thing set up see moron. 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 I'm stupid. Think about that. Like every time I draw up that memory going, man, I could have such a great memory in this place other than me trying to set this tent up. What am I thinking? And they're both gorgeous. Just just gorgeous. Young and gorgeous. I was young. Anyway, I I finally got my tent up and went to sleep and woke up. And of course, as when when one wakes up, I had to take a, a, a really big piss, so I headed over towards the Porta John. And there's a line to the Porta John, and sort of off to the side of the Porta John is a camper with sort of an awning with a blanket tarp pulled over it, so you can't see the people in the awning, but there's obviously people hanging out in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they start yelling at the people, yelling smart ass stuff to the people in, in line to the Porta John and people are throwing things against their tarp and uh, and stuff so I, I I do my business in the Porta John and I come out and there's and and you know it's very good natured it's joke everybody's sort of joking with each other but finally I'm just like you guys are really brave behind that tarp and they're like well why don't you come back here and I'm like I will and I come back here and there's just like all these scruffy hippies and they're like let's smoke some marijuana okay and so I'm smoking with them and they're all like laughing and this one guy's obviously just like don't do it don't do it and they're like you know who this guy is here <laughs> and i'm like no we've never met before they're like it's bobby brady and he turns like beat beat red 
And then at that second, you know, ding, ding, ding. As soon as they say it, it was just like, holy shit, that is fucking Bob, the, the actor who played Bobby Brady. Wow. And he's just like, yeah, don't tell anybody. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And he's just like, yeah, uh, he's obviously kind of pissed at his friends. So I smoked pot with Bobby Brady. Yeah, well, the consolation, I guess, after losing out on a three. I don't know, though. Do you really no, want to? No, no, no. I would trade that for in a <laughs> second, in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? Oh, oh my well. God. That, it, like, when I, go, when I die, and, and I'm, I'm living a blessed life, because when I die, that will be like, they'll be like, do you have any regrets? That will be the story. Well, who knows? <laughs> Hopefully I have a long time to maybe get some more regrets in there. That will probably be what I bring up on my deathbed, honestly. <laughs> People start talking about regrets and get misty-eyed. That's that's what happened. That's that's what comes into my mind. And, <laughs> okay. and then something in my brain goes, "No, no, no, no. You could still that could still happen." And then. The rational part of my brain goes, there's just not a chance. Like, no, there's strike not. Punch, you, lived, you missed it. I think strike. You had, and I had like five, you know, <sighs> they were, they were, it, it was beaten into my head. I, it didn't click for me until about six months later when I was talking to my friend who used to date the girl. And he was just like talking about how she kept trying to talk him into letting this other girl hop in. And he was not having any of it because he's even jealous of like another girl involved, which that's another kind of moron right there. That's a different kind of moron than me. At least he had like some sort of principle or reason anyway. Mm. But uh, he was just like, oh, yeah, well, at that time they were just like they that was the thing they wanted to do. And they could not find anybody who would do it with them. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they must have been in that tent going, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? <laughs> Jeez. Well, uh, I don't know. I look back. I guess there was a time I could have fucked a cop who arrested me. So, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. You should do that. Well, it depends on I. I, I it depends on the cop, but... <laughs> yeah, well... Nah, fuck it. We're talking about the past. Basically, <laughs> Puts a whole new meaning to fuck the police. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, <laughs> what happened was... I... Please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties. We will return soon. Please be patient. The shit has just royally hit the fan, so please stand by while we get everything fixed. Please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties. We will return soon. Please be patient. The shit has just royally hit the fan, so please stand by while we get everything fixed. Please stand by. We are experiencing technical difficulties.
We will return soon. Please be patient. The shit has just royally hit the fan, so please stand by while we get everything fixed. Well, anyway, so that's a... Uh... That's that's my little digression for the evening. Now, do Those you have are time? Our two stories of frustration. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. It's true. Now, uh, do you have time for a uh, lightning round or oh, my sure. li- uh, my lightning round? I mean. Oh, oh yeah. All right. Since we didn't really get into your lightning round too much, uh, let's see. Mine is Silver Screen 70s, and of course I didn't get the fucking page number. So let me just pull that out of the. Yeah, here it is, page 142, right? And basically, this is sort of a retrospective of 1970s in film, right? Specifically, though, what I want—at least the first of what I wanted to talk about—was *The Godfather*. Now, I realize that there is a sequel to *The Godfather*, and that's a very well-regarded sequel. A lot of people believe that *The Godfather* Part Two is actually better than the original. But of the two *Godfather* movies. I don't know. The one I keep coming back to is the first one. To me, that captured something. And as much as I admire The Godfather Part Two, I respect it. I think it's just a great fucking movie. Of the two of them, to me, hands down, the first Godfather is, was, and will always be the classic of the two. So Yeah, well, it's like Star Wars. Uh, I look at them as almost one thing because just the because of the way they were made mm-hmm. and everything. I think The Godfather Part 2, I think it got all the superlatives after. I, I think The Godfather Part 2 is a masterpiece of a movie, too. It's just, you know, but I think it got the superlatives because people were like, ah, this isn't good. You know, how could you be as good as The Godfather? And it it, 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 it was a successful movie. It wasn't a train crash. And, they were, and I think that was amazing to people. <laughs> It was it was beyond just a good movie. It was a it was a great movie too. But I mean, the original Godfather. It's funny. Somebody was talking about it wasn't it wasn't Superman the movie, but it was another movie that was a comedy. And they go, you know who wrote this? And they're like, Mario Puzo wrote this. And they're just like, geez, he was slumming it. And it's like, I read the the book The Godfather. It's a great book. It's a great read. It's a page turner. But it's pulp. It's it's trashy, you know. It's pure. It's like exploitation. And Coppola took that, and he adapted the story. I mean, the stories are pretty pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. But he it, he didn't make it. it, it the movie, felt, I, as I understood, was a lot less lurid than the than the novel had been. Yeah, the the, the novel was a little more lurid, but it was just it was. I don't want to say it was poorly written, but it wasn't, you know, like great literature. It was, it was in the, we're going right along with Jaws, like William Peter Blatty, um, sort of, was that, was that the Jaws? No, that's no Peter that was Bench- the Exorcist, Peter Benchley, I'm thinking the Exorcist writer. Right. And the same with the Exorcist. Those weren't like great pieces of fiction. They were just pop culture page turners, high quality pop culture page turners but you know Coppola took it and turned it into art you know into a an epic you know into a story of America pretty much in a way right or an American story you know he made it he made it seem I don't want to say more romantic 
seductive. Yes, yeah, and 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 it, classy. It looks. It's a classily. It's a high quality production. It's gory in points and it's hardcore in points. But you're like, when you're watching it, you're like, I'm watching this great story and the acting and the everything about it brings it to that level without making it pretentious, you know? Right. And uh, it's, I mean, it's it's one of those rare cases where the movie is a vast improvement over the book. Right. Well, I've never read the book. And honestly, you know, it's just I've heard so many not bad things it's a about fun read. it. Oh, no, it's fun. Right, but it's just, you know, the, people talk about that, you know, there are those kind of crucial differences that it's just a little, it has a little bit more graphic stuff in it, specifically because it was trying to be a little bit racy. Yeah, it, and the, it, that was 70s novels always had, were just, oh, packed full of sex and violence, graphic. Right, and it just, it kind of feels like to me, it, that would ultimately affect how I view the movie. And I just, I view it as this fucking Valentine to, in a weird kind of way, I guess the experience of Italian Americans over and against, I guess, the rise of America itself. And, you know, I, I just have this very specific view of it. And it's, look, I mean, I could turn around and read, like, the, I almost said novelization, forgive me. I could read the novel to Jaws tomorrow. And that's not going to affect the way that I see the movie. I fear that would that's what would happen with The Godfather. And that's why I just, I don't want to risk it, you know? So that's just how I feel. Yeah, the Jaws was another one. I, I read the novelization, like, or not the novelization, the original novel, right. probably like four or five times before I actually saw the movie. And it didn't hamper. I was just, I was shocked at the differences in the movie, but I still, I still loved the, the movie. It was different. It was a different thing. Another highly, I highly recommend Jaws. It's uh, any Peter Benchley novel really right. that i've read has been really good well but the thing about jaws that 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 works for me is is at least to me i mean almost it's almost a toss-up between that and jurassic park as to which is spielberg's definitive like spielbergian movie you know I, oh I, I i would i would pick jaws easily right it's just it, there's so much of what i associate with Steven Spielberg's style. And it's kind of funny because if you think about it, <clears throat> there is a lot of similarity between Jaws and Jurassic Park. I mean, and oh yeah, not least of which being they they're both adapted from books. I mean, they hyped they hyped Jurassic Park as as his return to form, a la Jaws, Jaws with dinosaurs, sort of. You know, I don't think they they really were using that term, but it was basically boiled down to that. And it was you know, there's going to be more of an edge to this movie. You know, it's, it's going to have a little more um, horror to it, you know? Right. And they were right. I look at I look at Jurassic Park as being iconic of Spielberg once he had become... Once he had become Spielberg the institution. Hollywood where, royalty. Where, where people were talking about Spielbergisms, and he had his whole, you know, dictionary of cinematic words that he used in the vocabulary that was, you know, easily showed that this was a Spielberg movie. Jaws wasn't as... Jaws had that stuff in it, 
but it was it was in his it was there wasn't a playbook phase. right he was he was he was just trying to get a movie done and he was spielberg so it was coming through in the movie but what you end up at like the early spielberg movies i think the only word i can think of to describe them is they're more naturalistic they had an almost a little more of a documentary edge to them, even though they were nicely filmed. Especially when you get back to like, um, oh, what is it? Um, something Land, Sugarland Express, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Right. To where they, you know, they got that independent filmmaker look to them. And Jaws was at that point where he was past the handheld independent look. But he was still hungry, young, and getting his and, and getting the Hollywood sheen to it, and it just perfectly captures that era of Spiel, that breakout era of of Spielberg, you know. And by like Close Encounters, that was when he was starting to get like the operatic. Stephen King can sort of be traced like that. Like early Stephen King books were more raw and naturalistic and then you know he just he refined his style and then you get into a certain period where they become stephen king books in capital letters right well and the thing about about jaws that works for me is that basically as far as i can tell pretty much everybody in that movie they've all got something to prove you know uh uh Steven Spielberg basically needed to show Hollywood that he can be a bankable success. And of all things for him to choose to prove that, this is a pretty fucking ballsy thing to do. I mean, yeah. if if Jaws had not worked, he would be doing TV commercials to this day, you mm-hmm. know? But but it but it worked. And you know, Robert Shaw, I my understanding is that he was basically talked into doing this by his family and as much as any and friends and stuff and as much as anything they they said well can you do i don't know if it was put to him quite like this but basically the challenge was can you do just sort of a fun sort of scary but fun adventure movie and then uh what's i'm blanking fuck R- uh, richard Dreyfus, right um he was basically there uh, to prove that he can be in movies that make money because apparently his last couple of movies had really tanked it he needed a hit and so, like I said, everyone was there kind of with an agenda. And if you know that behind-the-scenes stuff, that's great. But you you don't get that you don't get that just by watching the movie. You know, if you do a little bit of your scholarly research, then you find out. Well, you know, everyone involved had kind of, shall we say, political reasons for doing this. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's just to me, what I admire is just the the balls of doing. A movie that intricate, that complicated, <clears throat> with the limited technology they had, knowing full well what a pain in the ass it was going to be, and then not it only, was, yeah, yeah, not only making it through in one piece, but the movie goes on to be, I think, at that time, the most successful uh, movie ever made, or one of the most. And that's, you know, I don't want to under uh, underplay. And by the way, you know, I always promised myself if I ever talked about Jaws. On this show, I was always going to make this point. I've got the DVD, and it's got the uh, remixed soundtrack on there, and it's also got the original mono soundtrack. Any of you who are listening to this and you 
maybe you haven't watched Jaws in a long time, or maybe you have the DVD, or just whatever, whatever your situ- situation may be. People, fuck's sake, listen to the mono soundtrack. That remixed bullshit 5.1, that is not what people heard back in 1975, 76, whenever that fucking movie came out. That's not what people heard. They heard mono. Go mono or get out. And, you know, sometimes I'd be like, ah, don't be such a purist about it. But, you know, the other day someone posted some fans to basically did a restored version of Star Wars where they put it right back to the original, you know, pre-episode four New Hope. Oh, yeah, the, the, the Harmy edition, right? And I was like, oh, this is, yeah, and I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, I'm going to watch this. And then I started watching it, and I'm like, you know what? This is way... I And I'm not one of the... I don't like the special editions. You're here. I just don't think that... I think he did them too... It was too soon, special effects-wise... The the CGI doesn't stand up, and what he chose to put in, a lot of the times, not even a lot of the times, but there was too much goofy stuff put in that was that we didn't need, like song and dance sequences and and stuff like that. And when I watched the movie, just purely exactly as I saw it when I was a kid, it just came back to me how much better it was. With that, just with minor little beats that are left in there, and not as much noise and, you know, things thrown in, mm-hmm. it just works that much better, and it does not suffer even for the, you know, leaps in technology and all that. It doesn't, you're not going, oh, God. Now, was this the first time you'd seen the original version in, like, a really long time? Or? I've seen other ver- I, There was the Lucas... Put, Scott uh, sent me a great version of it that somebody had had done a similar thing where they'd pieced it together from several sources. And there was a DVD release where it was the bonus disc. Yeah, that's the one I've got, yeah. And, uh, you know, but that's still episode four, New Hope. It's no, it's still not. Got... No, 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 it's oh, not. Oh, no? No, 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 no. It, it basically, it starts off with the with the fanfare. You know, Star Wars is, like, big on the screen. It, uh-huh. z- it zips off in the background. And then, and then rather... It is Civil War in the Galaxy. Yeah, rather than saying episode four, New Hope, it just starts off right away with the crawl. It is a period of Civil War in the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, yeah, that's that's the version that's on there. And that's I, the one I like, honestly. That's how oh, I like yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, it's burned into my head from seeing it so many times in the theater and on HBO and all that and listening to the tapes we made of it from HBO and all that. But it that was the way that they made it. That's the way when they were sitting in the editing room and working on it and doing all the Foley work and putting everything together. They were saying, okay, let's do this because this works. And it did. And it worked fantastically. And I understand what he's trying to do. But, I mean, I I just, when when I watched it, uh, but I've always been like, well, whatever. You know, I'll, if that's his vision, that's his vision. But I'm telling you, when I'm going to watch Star Wars, I'm going to watch the old version because that's <clears throat> one that vibes with me. Well, and, you know, actually, since we're on the subject, I'm woeful- I'm woefully behind on uh, Star Wars Monthly Monday, and I think the main reason for that is because, honestly, I mean, I've got... Don't take this the wrong way, but I've got a kind of... My interest in Star Wars is pretty fucking limited, especially these uh-huh. days. 
Uh-huh. And I, I just, I like the movies and you know, comics and books and all that stuff. I'm, I'm sure it's fun and and all that stuff. It's just the older I get, the more I realize, you know what? That's just not for me. But so yeah, if, you can start listening in 2015 when, <laughs> when there's a lot of when we'll be doing. I'm sure we'll be doing a lot of stuff on the new movie. All right. Well, and that actually I do look forward. Unless to. it's some sort of hideous, you know malformed monster that scott and i feel that we both have to you know not go to right i don't see how that's possible for either of us right i, but I can go ahead. i'm very proud that scott was able to keep himself away from a superman movie even if he knew that he wasn't gonna like it because it's just he's just it's superman you know I mean, if I were him, I I, I understand how he feels because there would be the temptation even out of just wanting to know and he bypassed that. I don't think I can do that for a Star Wars movie, to be honest with you. Even if it turns out to be, you know, I hear it's the worst train crash ever or it's like... I very much doubt it's going to be quote unquote Disneyfied because I don't think Disney really does that anymore mm-hmm. too much. But you know, if it turned out to be something that I was just totally against, I don't. I think I'd still have to go see it well, probably multiple times. <laughs> well, where I where I was going to go with that was, um, you know, basically to apologize in advance if this is something you you and Scott have already discussed. But you know, obviously Disney owns Lucasfilm now. Yeah. Not just Star Wars, but Lucasfilm. Yeah. And basically, whatever is Lucasfilm's property is now Disney's property, at least as I understand it. So, what do you think the odds are now of Disney releasing original uncut editions of the original trilogy? I don't know. I don't know. I would. You would probably have to get access to whatever. I can't imagine how thick this the paperwork signed legal paperwork signed between Lucas and uh, and Disney was but I'm sure there's got to be knowing George Lucas I can't see how he would just lock stock and barrel say okay you have the rights to do with whatever you want with the original ones that, that, that were made under his you know stewardship so I can't but I mean technically that original one was made under a stewardship I don't know I think it would be very smart of Disney to do that Well, and that's the thing I don't think Star Wars by which I mean the first movie Star Wars I don't think that is Lucasfilm's property I think that's Fox's property isn't it don't they own the rights to that don't know i somehow i don't think so Hmm. but i don't know technically how that works Hmm. well and i guess as far as original this this is as smooth a segue as i could think of (laughs) as far as original versions are concerned the same actually kind of holds true of apocalypse now except that i don't care to see apocalypse now redo i don't feel like i need to see that i haven't seen it yet i'm very curious i've heard I've heard it's good to see if you're a fan of the movie because the scene in the plantation, mm-hmm. while probably being, it was probably a good idea to cut it, is still 
really good and technically you know cinematically it's amazingly beautiful it's like this beautiful plantation in the middle of the jungle you know like a southern style plantation so it's a weird almost dream sequency thing and i'd be curious to see that just as a cinemaphile and a lover of that movie mm-hmm. but i don't imagine i don't imagine myself seeing it and being like oh this is the 2000 or 2001 this is this is the apocalypse now that i'm going to watch from now Ap- apocalypse now is well, one that's, of those no, that, that's when it came out 2001 so you're on point <laughs> yeah yeah okay the Apocalypse Now is one of those movies uh, my mother's boss at the time was one of the first people to get a, a VCR but he got like a VCR camcorder set up it was really expensive and uh, it was it, you know the first thing he did was hook it up to the stereo and he went to the video store and he came back and he's like I brought Apocalypse Now this is gonna sound so good on the stereo and he's like, have you ever seen this? I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, you're in for a treat. And uh, so we watched Apocalypse Now and then everybody went to bed and I stayed up all night watching it again. Like, But it had an old school, like an editing um, sort of dial on it where you could duck it back and forwards, you know, sort of tap it back and forward, like one frame at a time. And I watched that goddamn movie one frame at a time just like it would you know i was in heaven the little film nerd heaven i could actually watch this amazing movie and see what was going on you know frame by frame and there's there's like weird little subliminal stuff towards the end single frames of marlon brando's head and stuff oh it was amazing well i i never saw it until 2000 2003, right? And I want to be clear on this. I've never seen Apocalypse Now Ray Do. I've only seen the original. Um, I saw it basically in uh, 2003, and what happened was I was I went shopping for a DVDs one weekend, and that was one of the ones because sometimes you can buy a movie blind, knowing you're gonna like it, and so you don't need to worry about wasting money on it in, right. in case you don't like it. It's rare. Like Snatch is another example of a movie I didn't need to see beforehand. I just knew I could buy it and you know, I, would, I would be fine. But Apocalypse Now is one of the ones that I bought and then I just, I brought it home and just, fuck it, I forgot about it, right? Pretty much. And so a couple of days later, I was sick. I had to call out sick from work. And so I'm sitting there in, in my little home office that had a, um, my, uh, my computer, then is now had a, a surround sound rig on it. Uh, 5.1 surround sound and so I looked over at, at the thing and it was still it was, I think it was even still in the shrink wrap and I thought to myself you know what I've never seen this thing before but I am so just out of my mind right now on NyQuil and all this other shit I bet this would be a very interesting movie uh-huh. experience <laughs> to have right now <clears throat> so sure enough this I, is the end yeah and you know what it, 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 it's funny you should say that because I didn't even need to see like the start of the movie proper. Just like all I saw was that little bit at the heli- with the helicopter, and I made and I remembered to turn on the surround, the matrix yeah. surround sound. And so you have this helicopter that's basically spinning around you, and then out of nowhere, that section of the forest just goes up like a fucking tinderbox. Right as Jim Morrison kicks in, this is the end. And 
I, I didn't need to see anything else besides that to know, you know what? I have no idea what's going to come next. This movie is going to be fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. And it was. It was like, and like my favorite parts of it actually are those, are, are the narrated bits where you have, uh, what's his name? Sheen. Uh, he's Martin on Sheen. Martin Sheen. I was about to say Charlie Sheen, but I know that's not right. Martin Sheen. He's on, um, he's on the boat basically going up, uh, the Putang River or whatever that was called. And he's basically just reviewing uh, Kurtz's dossier and he's got this voiceover and he's smoking like a motherfucker and he's got this raspy voice now because of it and he's going through the pictures and stuff and you have this really heavy blue lighting with his deep dark fucking shadows and I, I'm sitting there I'm watching this stuff I'm like dude this is what every movie needs to look like you know and obviously no that's not what every movie can look like but whatever I was just so into the moment that is one of the great like <clears throat> I think everybody has like a top five or a top ten movies that they're always going to own copies of in home in a home video, whatever whatever the format may be. And that one's that one's mine. That that's definitely one of mine. And uh, that's it's one of those movies that I'm I almost don't want to talk about it too much, except to talk about like techniques and stuff. I don't want to give away like what happens in the movie. Because the movie isn't really about the plot; it's about the characters, no. and it's, or yeah. it's it's about the cinematography, or it's about insanity, or it's about war—not necessarily the Vietnam War, but more war as just a general subject, as like an abstract uh, concept. Not necessarily. It's true film. It's It's like entertainment. But at the same time, it reaches the levels of any kind of great art or poetry. You know, I mean, I think that was a renaissance of those kind of movies in the 70s that hasn't really... Movies have still... I think movies have become stronger over time. But like Scorsese, Coppola, um, Spielberg, kind of to a lesser extent, he went super pop. But like the film, uh, Kubrick, you know... Where you see a movie and it's enjoyable on every level and it's got your brain, it's got every part of your brain working, you know, right. on, on a level. And, and at that time period, that, that kind of movie was just, they were cranking them out. Yeah, they were. These, these filmmakers. I mean, Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver is another one I watched frame. I watched on that with that VCR in a, like a month period I I got to watch Apocalypse Now, A Clockwork Orange and Taxi Driver do you know all the way through and then then going through it frame by frame by frame Clockwork Orange was really fun to do that way I don't imagine I got to imagine <sighs> Yeah that's another one that that could become a uh, a separate show all by itself just something about Clockwork Orange. In fact, you know what? Maybe, fuck it. Maybe it should be at some point. But oh, I'm that's... your man for that show. All right. Well, um, uh, it's the kind of thing I'd want to rewatch first. But yeah, I, maybe at some point in the future, maybe. So, well, um, I think you know, two and a half hours ought to be just about enough. So um, it's good. It's a short one this time. <laughs> yeah. Well, for us, yeah. But for this, for this show, yeah. So I uh, tell you what, why don't you uh, tell everybody where it is they can find you, as if they don't know, but just in you case. You can find me smeared all over 2TrueFreaks.com. That's the 2TrueFreaks network. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, pretty much a reg I'm pretty much a regular 
on Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Walking Dead Wednesday, The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales, The Terror Commentary Monthly Monday, whatever other bullshit podcast Scott Gardner and I think of to do, Garage Sale Gloat, what other ones? I pop up on Hutu Freaks every once in a while. Basically, just take your pick. And if you pick a show that I'm not on, you're probably going to enjoy it anyway. <laughs> and you also need to get a uh, another uh, Two True Freaks Storytellers episode out there. Um, It's funny you say that. I, I, I'll probably beat you to... When is this one due out? Uh, the one... Uh, Big Book of the 70s. That's not set until... See if I can find it here. More than a month. Uh, May the thirteenth. Um, yes. Okay. Well, there will be another storytellers. There's guaranteed. I can guarantee you another storytellers, because um, the 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 next storyteller has to be released in episode 420. And I just I just recorded is that episode like a drug four. thing or it is. It's going to be titled Chris versus Drugs. <laughs> I'll you to be there for that one. Oh, all right, all right. Quite a. <laughs> I'm I am I've I've already got a notebook and I've got different pages for different drugs, and an overview and then a collection of of stories. All right. Some of which are pretty harrowing. All right, well, I can't wait to listen to it when it comes out, so. So, yeah, episode 420, Storytellers. Everybody loves the Storytellers. And just so you know, the Big Book of Losers, that one's set for March the 18th, so another that's couple of weeks. right up, yeah. So, all right, so, well, otherwise, I think that's uh, basically it for me. So I just want to say thanks again for uh, joining in with me, especially uh, giving two and a half hours of your time here. I really appreciate you. Uh, uh, oh, no problem. So. Well, that's it. Uh, That's it for us this week. So bye, everybody, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. We are out. prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh.
I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S. M-A-G-N-U-S Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, 
please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.